2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's Tom Hartman here with you on the place where smart people get their news, Tom Hartman Program. I want to get into Trump and trade. And of course, the Supreme Court just handed a big victory to young people, children who were brought here to this country from other countries as children. The DACA recipients, they call themselves Dreamers, which is a beautiful name. The good news is the court said, no, Trump, you can't do that. The bad news is the court said, basically, you know, DACA was not created by Congress. It was created by President Obama by executive order. And one president's executive order can be overturned by another president's executive order. The problem is you got to fill out the paperwork right, basically. And here's how you fill out the paperwork right. So everybody's saying, oh, it's a great victory for young people and for DACA recipients, basically. What we don't know yet, and we probably won't know for a day or so until the the lawyers have really dug into this deeply, is whether Trump will be able to now follow the roadmap that the Supreme Court laid out to correctly overturn a Trump executive order between now and January when a new president might get sworn in. And I'm betting he will be able to, but we'll see. Forgive me for being a little cynical on that. But anyhow, so that's going on. And I guess, you know, that's pretty much my take on that. And I think, you know, we all need to keep an eye on it. Because, you know, I mean, these are children who, through no fault of their own, came to this country. And now they think, you know, I mean, they grew up here. This is their country. But let's start with trade and Trump and this seeming mystery and this is not getting the headline treatment that I think, frankly, it should. It's, it's a story that you'll find in the top 15 stories on most websites, but I don't think people are really understanding the story behind the story. You'll recall, and I've talked about this many, many times on this program over the years, how back in 1791... During the George Washington administration, Washington went to Alexander Hamilton and said, Okay, we got a country, we've got a constitution, how do we turn this into a prosperous country? And it took Hamilton two years. And in 1793, well, actually, it did take him two years, Washington gave him that commission in 1789. In 1791, Hamilton brought forward his work, his masterpiece. It was an 11-point plan called Alexander Hamilton's Report on Manufacturers. You can Google it. In fact, if you Google it with my name, you'll find a number of articles and a book I wrote about it. And it took Washington about two years, but by 1793, we had 30% tariffs on imported goods. We were subsidizing American manufacturers. We were making it very, very difficult for the export of American raw materials. Very easy to import raw materials into the United States. So It was basically, like I said, an 11-point program. We've talked about it many times over the years on this program. And it stood until the Reagan administration. And it turned America into the industrial powerhouse of the world. And then, I mean, Nixon opened us to China, but Reagan really kicked the door open in a big way. Not only China, but also Reagan and Bush negotiated NAFTA. Bill Clinton signed it, but it was a Republican thing all along. So what happened, what's in the news this morning is that uh, Trump's trade guy, Peter Navarro, proposed that America should spend roughly $2 trillion to basically bring all our factories back home from China. And Mexico and Vietnam and pretty much every place else. But the, you know, this would be a $2 trillion project. It would be massive. It would be successful. It would strengthen America's national security. I mean, right now we can't build a cruise missile without chips we get from China. It would strengthen our domestic security. It would rebuild the American middle class. It would create an explosion in what could be very good paying jobs for American workers, what could be unionized jobs. And while all this seems to be exactly what Donald Trump campaigned on, it turns out his administration is opposed to it, which has everybody scratching their heads. Why would Trump tell Americans over and over and over again for five years that he wants to bring jobs home and then reject a reasonable effort to do that? Why? Is it because offshoring American jobs was always a Republican thing? As I mentioned, Nixon opened us up to China. Reagan and Bush negotiated NAFTA. The principal opposition to NAFTA was Democrats, people like Sherrod Brown and Bernie Sanders. Is that why? Is Trump just returning to Republican orthodoxy? Or is there some other reason why he doesn't want to do anything genuinely proactive about bringing jobs back to America? And if so, what could it be? Well, we get a clue in John Bolton's book. Seriously, it just puts it all in context. Consider Trump's opposition to bringing manufacturing jobs home on the one hand and his request of President Xi of China that Xi help him get re-elected in 2020 the same way he asked Putin to help him get re-elected in 2016. The only difference is that when he asked Putin to help him get re-elected, when he asked President Putin to help him, he did it in public he said, Russia, if you're listening, we'd love to get those Hillary emails. And literally within hours, the servers got hacked and the emails, you know, got leaked through WikiLeaks and all that kind of stuff. So Trump publicly asked Russia to help him, but it turns out he privately asked China too. And this is this is in John Bolton's new book. So he's hoping now, and it's fairly obvious, Trump is hoping that China will do this year. What Russia did four years ago, mobilize their vast and extraordinarily competent and sophisticated Internet capabilities and their economic power. China can do this even better than Russia. I mean, Russia wasn't going to buy a trillion dollars worth of our exports. China can. China's got a much larger economy than Russia. So Donald Trump is basically saying to China, help me get reelected. You know, have a massive presence on the Internet to trash Biden and help me. And buy a bunch of stuff from American farmers and things. And so that, you know, therefore he's unwilling to risk upsetting China. And, and in fact, I, you know, I, let me put a punctuation mark on this. Huawei, the Chinese uh, telecom manufacturer, the Trump administration, has been resisting letting Huawei into the United States because basically they seem to be a spying arm of the Chinese military. Well, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday. We had this total national brownout of T-Mobile for like a whole day. You know, it should have been top headline all over the country. Well, that night, at the end of the day, around 6 p.m. that night, the Trump administration said, yeah, we'll let Huawei in. You think there's a link between the two? I mean, Trump is not only betraying our country and the values that underpin a democratic republic, but he's doing it to get reelected. This. Is the Tom Hartman program. This is craven, it's cowardly, and frankly, it's nothing short of treason. Did you know that Ronald Reagan committed treason to become president in 1980 and George Herbert Walker Bush was in on it and he avoided being prosecuted for this in 1992 with a little help from Bill Barr? It's on page 116 of my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. you know i just find this pretty mind-boggling you know this whole thing and the idea that the donald trump who has you know basically made his career talking about trade talking about oh free trade this free trade that i'm you know it's free trade is terrible a position that the democratic party has held forever right the whole you know uh, free trade position i mean trump has been trashing free trade Democrats have been trashing free trade. Let's keep in mind, up until he declared that he was running for president of the United States, Donald Trump had been a Democrat. It was during his campaign that his daughter and, and his sons changed their registration from Democratic to Republican. He knew the Democratic position on trade. He knew very well that the Republican position on free trade was what had gutted trade in the United States. Now, granted, Clinton adopted that. I'll give you that. But it was the Republican position. Just like any welfare as we know it was the Republican position. Yes, Clinton adopted that too. I think we can all agree the Bill Clinton presidency, you know, had some good things to it, but by and large was a disaster. At least for the American people. And we should learn from that. Anyhow, Susan in Phoenix. Hey, Susan, what's up?
3: Hi, Tom. Yes, I'm just responding to some of the things you just said. And When you said that President Trump had secretly asked China to help him in the election. Well, if it's secret, isn't that considered a conspiracy? And then if it's a conspiracy, isn't it treasonous? And is the only way to hold him accountable is impeachment when somebody's outrightly treasonous against us American people? yes
2: there are only two options according to the Department of Justice in this memo that was written back during the Nixon time and then uh, revalidated during the Clinton impeachment hearings both times when presidents were accused of wrongdoing the Department of Justice said you can't investigate a president you can't charge a president with a crime because the Constitution provides for impeachment and that's the only way you can hold a president accountable and of course there's the second way which is gonna happen on November 3rd when we can flush this guy but that's basically it. Impeachment, which is not going to happen again, tragically. I think it should. Or vote him out. And my concern, Susan, is how much damage this guy can do between now and January 20th, when, you know, hopefully Joe Biden, assuming that Biden, you know, is our nominee, and I think it's a fairly safe assumption now, gets an Well, what, what so, about, is it something you call treason, though? Well, I'm calling it treason. I, you know, I think that at the very least, it's betrayal. And betrayal on a massive scale. It's betrayal of American working people after he has positioned himself. I mean, the core of his campaign, even the the Mexican rapists are coming part of the core of his campaign was, you know, we've been offshoring jobs. Those jobs went to Mexico. You've got Mexicans who are coming to take your job. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So it's always been about jobs. And, you know, clearly, it's just BS. Susan, thank you for the call. You know, spot on. Yes, it's treason. And welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. And today we're reading from Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back. This is Chapter 11. It's titled Corporate Control of Politics, page 170. During the bruising primary election season of 2008, a right-wing group put together a 90-minute hit job on Hillary Clinton and wanted to run it on TV stations in strategic states. Federal Election Commission ruled that the advertisements for the documentary were actually campaign ads and thus fell under the restrictions on campaign spending of the McCain Feingold Act and thus stopped them from airing. Corporate contributions to campaigns have been repeatedly banned and in various ways since 1907, when Republican President Teddy Roosevelt pushed through the Tillman Act. Citizens United, the right-wing group, sued to the Supreme Court, with right-wing hitman and former Reagan solicitor General Ted Olson. The man who argued Bush's side of Bush v. Gore as their lead lawyer. This new case, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, presented the best opportunity for the Roberts Court to use its five vote majority to completely rewrite the face of American politics, rolling us back to the pre 1907 era of the robber barons. And if there was one man to do it, it was John Roberts. Although he was handsome with a nice smile and photogenic young children, Roberts was no friend to average working Americans. If anything, he was the most radical judicial activist appointed to the court in more than a century. He'd worked most of his life in the interest of the rich and powerful and was chomping at the bit for a chance to turn more of America over to his friends. As Jeffrey Tubin wrote in The New Yorker, quote, in every major case since he became the nation's seventeenth Chief Justice, Roberts has sided with the prosecution over the defendant, the state over the condemned the executive branch over the legislative, and the corporate defendant over the individual plaintiff. Even more than Scalia, who has embodied judicial conservatism during a generation of service on the Supreme Court, Roberts has served the interests and reflected the values of the contemporary Republican Party. End of quote. And the fastest way the modern Republican Party could recover its power over the next decade was to immediately clear away all impediments to unrestrained corporate participation in electoral politics. If a corporation likes a politician, it can ensure that he is elected every time. If it becomes upset with a politician, it can carpet bomb her district and with a few million dollars worth of ads and politically destroy her. In the citizens united case, the Roberts court listened to arguments and took briefs and even discussed it among themselves as if they were going to make a decision, but instead of deciding the case on the relatively narrow grounds on which it originally been argued, whether a single part of a single piece of legislation, in this case McCain-Feingold, was unconstitutional, the court asked for it to be reargued in September 2009 and asked that the breadth of the arguments be expanded to reexamine the rationales for Congress to have any power to regulate so-called free speech by corporations. In this, they were going along with a request from Theodore B. Olson, who argued Bush v. Gore, and would not now not just look at this narrow case, but go back nearly 20 years to re-examine, perhaps overturn their own ruling in the Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce case, where the court held that it was constitutional for Congress to pass limits on corporate political activities, as well as its decision in 2003 to uphold McCain-Feingold as constitutional the setup for this twenty ten decision came in june of two thousand seven in the federal election commission versus wisconsin right-to-life case in which the robert courts ruled that the fcc could not prevent wisconsin right-to-life from running ads just because it was a corporation the idea of congress passing laws that limited corporate free speech was clearly horrifying to both roberts and scalia scalia went after the nineteen ninety austin v michigan chamber of commerce case in which the then Rehnquist Court had ruled that the Michigan Chamber of Commerce was limited in its free speech in a political campaign because it was a corporation. Scalia complained This Austin was the only pre mcconnell case that this court had ever permitted the government to restrict political speech based on the corporate identity of the speaker. Austin upheld state restrictions on corporate independent expenditures, and God forbid, the statute had been modeled after the federal statute, the BCRA 203 amended. End of quote. The Austin case Scalia concluded with four others nodding was a significant departure from ancient First Amendment principles. In my view, it was wrongly decided. Scalia was quoted at length from opinions in the Gross Gene v. American Press 1936 case. In Scalia's words, quote, holding that corporations are guaranteed the freedom of speech and of press, safeguarded by the due process of law clause of the 14th Amendment. He also quoted the 1986 Pacific Gas and Electric. Company versus Public Utility Commission of California case the identity of the speaker is not decisive in determining whether speech is protected corporations and other associations like individuals contribute to the discussion debate and the dissemination of information and ideas that the first amendment seeks to foster the bottom line for Scalia was quote the principle that such advocacy is at the heart of the first amendment's protection And is indispensable to decision making in a democracy is no less true because the speech comes from a corporation rather than an individual. The book Unequal Protection: How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro-kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple-glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two ends or enter the code HARTMAN, the two Ns, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code HARTMAN or going to cookunity.com slash HARTMAN. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy
4: car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com
0: or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
2: Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E in California, California Utility, that uh, on numerous occasions as it uh, broke up and sold off pieces and all this kind of stuff back after the Enron scandal, it just pled guilty to killing 84 American citizens. They just pled guilty. Now, if you pled guilty to killing 84 people, this was because their infrastructure was old and creaky. The long, the long lines, the high-tension lines snapped. It started a fire called the Camp Fire. That fire killed 84 people, in, mostly in Paradise, California, as I recall. They had been given literally billions of dollars over the previous decade to replace those wires. And instead of doing that, they took that money and they gave it to their stockholders and their executives, or much of it. So this company pleads guilty to killing 84 people. Now, if you pled guilty to killing 84 people, please tell me how long do you think you'd be in jail? Do you think you'd have to pay a fine of $10,000 per person as your maximum penalty? I mean, this is nuts. When PG&E says that they want to buy a politician and they own a number of, in fact, a large number of politicians in the California Assembly and the California Senate. When they say that they want to buy a politician, they say, we're people. We have free speech rights under the First Amendment, which grants all the persons in the United States, all the citizens of the United States, grants everybody the right to, of free speech. And the Supreme Court back in 1978, the Bellotti decision said, as a corporation, we have the right to own politicians and influence the political process, which they've done spectacularly for years in California. So when it comes to owning politicians, they claim they're a person. But when they kill 84 human beings, oh, we're, we're just a corporation. You can't put us in jail. You can't put our executives in jail. They didn't do it, the corporation did it. You can't put the corporation in jail because it's really just a piece of paper. It's a document the Articles of Incorporation filed with the Secretary of State of California. You can't put a document in jail. So, you know, we're a person when we want to be, and we're not a person when we want to be. You know, the simple reality here is that corporate personhood is a lie. It was a lie when corporations argued in 1886, argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, that corporations should be considered persons under the 14th Amendment, which had just been passed in the previous decade, which said that all persons shall have equal access to the law, equal protection under the law. It's called the Equal Protection Clause. That's why I wrote a book about it called Unequal Protection. But in any case, back in 1886, the Supreme Court did not say corporations are people. In fact, they explicitly ruled against the Southern Pacific Railroad, which was arguing that it was a person, in not just that case, but five other so called railroad tax cases in the 1880s. But John Chandler Bancroft Davis, the clerk of the court, former railroad president, son of a super wealthy governor of Massachusetts, in a headnote, just a commentary, no legal authority at all, in a headnote, to that decision said, well, the Chief Justice said, well, you know, we all agree corporations are persons. Well, yeah, he said that what he meant was for purposes of paying taxes, not for purposes of the 14th Amendment. So anyhow, corporate person is a lie. It was a lie when corporations argued for the Supreme Court in 1885. By the way, the next year, I believe it was 86, it might've been 87, President Grover Cleveland, the only Democrat to be elected president of the United States in the entire period from the Civil War till Woodrow Wilson came in. When in his State of the Union address, Grover Cleveland said, we're seeing, I'm paraphrasing here, we're seeing a massive accumulation of wealth at the top and corporations, which should be the carefully constrained masters of the people, have their iron boot on the neck of the average American worker. Look it up. Grover Cleveland Iron, actually, "iron heel" was the phrase he used. It should be real easy to find. It's a shocking quote from the president of the United States. This is what he was talking about: this corporate personhood BS. It was a lie when the Supreme Court inserted itself in that clerk's headnote. In subsequent years, it's been—it's happened like 30 or 40 times now, where the Supreme Court has referenced the head note in that 1886 case and said, "Well, back in 1886, in Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, uh, we decided that corporations are people. No, you didn't." It was a lie in 2010 when the Supreme Court of the Citizens United decision said, well, back in 1886, we gave hey, corporate, blah-de-blah, blah, and, and, and took it even farther. John Paul Stevens, in his dissent in that 2010 uh, Citizens United case, said that the, the uh, reasoning of the majority of the court, because it was a, you know one of these lopsided decisions, Five, four, conser- all conservatives. He said, according to this reasoning, Tokyo Rose, the famous propaganda uh, uh, broadcaster during World War II, who would go on to the uh, not just the general frequencies, but you know they would even broadcast her on the radio frequencies that the American aircraft flying in the Pacific theater were using to communicate with each other. And they would suddenly hear this woman speaking English with a, with a Japanese accent saying, you are doomed, you are going to lose, we shall defeat you, why don't you just give up now? Right, so John Paul Stevens pointed out in the dissent to Citizens United, Tokyo Rose would be able to buy an American media company, essentially, under this. Tokyo Rose would have the ability to buy advertising and, and, and spread her message in the United States under this decision. And when President Obama, uh, in January of, uh, I believe it was January, it might have been early February, in his State of the Union address the following year, in 2011, when he said, the Supreme Court, Qu- I'm paraphrasing from memory here, the Supreme Court and its Citizens United decision. Just gave foreign corporations all this power. Sam Alito's sitting in the front row and he says, not true. He mouths it out. Well, it is true. And earlier this week, the Federal Communications Commission, based on a Trump recommendation, ruled that foreign corporations can now, up until now, they could only own 25% of an American broadcasting company. Only 25%. There was a, a Prince Talweed, or whatever his name is, uh, you know, the Saudi Arabian prince owned 7% of Fox News. He sold that after 9 11. But, you know, it used to be a ceiling in 25%. Now they can own 100%. Cumulus, the network Cumulus was who asked for this. It's a, you know, a couple hundred radio stations and they're up for sale. Are they gonna be bought by the Chinese? Are they gonna be bought by the Russians? Are they gonna be bought by, who's gonna buy these cumulus stations? Well, now it can be, you know, so that doctrine along with the parallel doctrine that money is speech have become poison. And Reagan used this, Americans are sick of living in this oligarchy. Reagan used this 40 years ago to shift political power from the people to the massive corporations and billionaires And here we are. The American middle class has been gutted over these last 40 years. Small and medium-sized businesses destroyed our environment and our democracy under assault. It's time to end this. PG&E should get the corporate death penalty for killing all these Americans. The company should be dissolved. Its assets sold. Its directors put in jail. Americans have had enough. We want our democracy back. We're sick and tired of this oligarchy. We need to either amend the Constitution or expand the Supreme Court to reverse these two doctrines that were created exclusively by the this Supreme Court. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, Evan, Riverside, California. Hey, David, what's on your mind? Tom, I
5: can't find anything on the Internet about Trump's taxes and a decision in the Supreme Court. Are they ever going to make a decision, or do you have any idea?
2: I don't know. I really don't know, David. There were several don't cases presented to, to them... They have to make a choice, presumably in the next week, you know, before they go on recess, as to which of those cases, if any, they're going to take. It's possible that they have done that and it simply slipped by me and I didn't notice, but to the best of my knowledge, they have not made a choice on that. So
5: this could just go on forever?
2: Well, no. If they choose not to look at any cases, then the precedent set by the lower courts will stand. But the reason why I think that they're going to have to, to choose. Is because there have been lower court decisions on both sides, some saying that Trump has to cough up the information, others saying he doesn't have to. So, I mean, typically that's when the Supreme Court steps in. The whole point of the Supreme Court, Article 3, Section 2, is to be the court of last resort, right, the final court of appeals. So, you know, we'll see. And maybe somebody is, you know, maybe I'm misinformed or uninformed on this, and perhaps one of the people watching right now or listening knows if the court has picked up one of these cases, but to the best of my knowledge.
5: So maybe by, you say the end of June, they, that's when they end their session?
2: When the court starts issuing decisions, when they start issuing decisions, that means that that's the end of their, uh, they call it a term, it's the end of the time that they're hanging out together and making decisions, which means that they're about to go on summer vacation. And I believe they come back in September, I could be wrong, but you know, they will then come back later so this is could be
5: after the election
2: it, it's entirely possible it takes four justices to what's called grant cert to basically say uh is the latin word but it basically means yes we're going to acknowledge this case we're going to give this case standing we're going to acknowledge that the people brought the case have standing and we're going to hear the decisions before the supreme court when the court does that then you know it goes on to the court's docket and as far as I know, CERT has not been granted in any of those cases. And like I said, it takes four justices. I'm pretty sure it takes four justices to grant CERT. It may take four justices to put it on the list to grant CERT. I could be wrong on that. Also, I'd have to go back and, 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 and look it up. But in any case, it's, I don't know, David. We'll see. We'll find out. Thank you, Tom. Actually, you know, your question, will they decide after the election? If one of those cases wasn't heard in the last couple of months, and like I said, again, it's entirely possible it was, and it just slid right by me, and I didn't notice it. If one of those cases was heard, we will hear that decision probably this week. If not, if they have decided, or if they do decide to grant cert to one of those cases, then the arguments will be heard in the fall, and yeah, they may well uh, release the decisions in January, which is typically when when they wrap up for their winter term. Len in Woodmere, New York. Hey, Len, what's on your mind?
6: Hi, you were talking about the Supreme Court, and I think a perfect correction to the current mode would be to increase the number to 13, which in and of itself would do the most to depoliticize it, but also create a 26-year term limit, which, if at the end of 26 years, the current president wanted to renominate the person, then he could. But Supreme Court was created when life expectancy wasn't carrying out 85, eighty-five, ninety. Twenty-six years is pretty much what a you know a lifetime of ideas is in anyone's prime.
2: Where'd did you come years, up with that specific number? Why twenty-six instead of twenty or twenty-three well, it's, or it's
6: 13, eighteen? 13, every two years, there'd be a new uh, expiration.
2: Oh, I see. If you have 13 members and you have 26, uh, and you have people with 26-year terms and uh, you stagger them to start on a two-year basis, then every two years you've got a new, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I like that. Yeah,
6: one. and and past 11 into 13 would, like, totally depoliticize it, because, you know, any one Supreme Court member just wouldn't have that much sway. And obviously yeah. you still need an odd number, because uh, there's yeah. got to be, you know. Even in tennis, you got to win with an odd number.
2: There you go. <laughs> yes, fascinating, Len. Thank you. I, I agree with you. I think that's a great idea. Uli in Teaneck, New Jersey. Hey, Uli, what's up? Thanks for watching us on YouTube.
7: There's been talk about the uh, changing the structure of the Supreme Court in the U.S. And I wanted to give you uh, the basic structure of the German Supreme Court. So that's Bundesverfassungsgericht, okay. court of sixteen judges. To be a minimum of 40 years old, elected for a 12-year term, and the retirement age is 68. They only can be elected once. The nomination process is also different. Half come from the lower house, or the Bundesrat, and half come from the upper house, the Bundestag. Hmm.
2: So they're elected by whom? By their peers, or by the uh, they people? They have
7: been nominated to the parties, and then, they get elected to the lower and uh, upper house. I don't know all the exactly. So, exact so your equivalent
2: of the house and and the senate vote on which of their members move up into the supreme court, basically.
7: Right. And then okay. the president, I think, the alternate. I don't know. How, the president. Of know, the court? how many years? i I don't know about all the yeah. details, but this is the, the basic okay. structure of it.
2: Right. Now, I understand Germany also has a separate Supreme Court that just deals with constitutional issues, and the normal Supreme Court does not have the power of judicial review. Do I understand that correctly, Uli?
7: I'm not sure about that.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. It's uh, good and useful information. Jerry in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Jerry, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today?
8: I, I really appreciate your show, and my question to you or to the American people is, why can't we
6: put our fingerprints on our voting ballots?
2: Like we, we, have we do, to our, a certain extent. Uh, Long before we had voter ID, I mean, literally when I was seven years old and my mom was working at the local elementary school signing people in to vote, and I used to sit there with her and watch her do it, um, she would, you you had a card when you first registered to vote, you'd fill out this card and you would sign it. And she would pull that card out and you'd have to sign the book. As you came in, you said, you know, my name is Joe Blow. And, and she says, sign there. You sign it. And she's looking at the card. as she's looking at the signature. That's biometric identification. It's harder to fake than buying a phony ID. It's almost impossible to fake a signature when it's done in real time. Even when it's not done in real time, it's almost impossible. I mean, that's that's why forgery is half art, half science. And so, you know, we've always used biometric identification. This idea that you need to have an ID to vote is crazy. It's it's it, This was just another voter suppression effort that the Republicans came up with to make it harder for people who live in big cities and don't own cars, for example, to vote. Or people who are over 65 and don't drive anymore to vote. Or, oh, okay. you know, students who have not yet started voting. You know, Randy, it's, that's it. Uh,
6: is there also a verification that we could... Uh know that our vote has been accounted for
2: i believe in most states you can look yourself up on the state's secretary of state's website and see if you if your vote was recorded if you are listed as having voted whether that would include things like provisional ballots which may not be counted but you may still register as having voted i don't know because that's going to vary from state to state how they implement that and on that i would refer you to the you know the expert on this stuff which would be brad friedman with his brad blog and or greg Pallast. randy thank you for the call jasper in atlanta georgia hey jasper what's on your mind today before we can get anything done we're going to have to deal with the
8: supreme court if they will not allow the congress to have oversight And if they won't enforce subpoenas, well, then there's really no rule of law. And I don't understand how a person like Mr. Roberts can tell us that there's no more racism in the country and that there's no more need for voter accountability. And then you see what just happened in Georgia. I'm mighty afraid that if we are not able to hold... These people are accountable, and like you said, and put people back on the payroll and the IRS and these other agencies so that they can do the job that needs to be done. But then eventually, I think that there's something worse that's going to come on the country uh, as far as biblical times. I think the country has a certain time, but I think it can rush its time. And I think with people like Mr. Trump in charge, that they are actually rushing I guess you would put it gassing a car going right into a stone wall, and the switch will not be in any return. Because if they're telling us now that the the national debt is about five trillion dollars, I'm saying
2: it's about double that, twenty five trillion. I think. But your point is well made, Jasper, and your metaphor is good. If that wall represents, or the car in the wall, you know, represents democracy in America, because what these guys are working toward is privatizing virtually all government functions. They've already privatized half of the entire intelligence budget. They've privatized about 20% of the entire military budget. Privatization of government functions has a name. Benito Mussolini came up with the name back in the 1920s, in the mid to late 1920s. It was called fascism, and it still is called fascism, and that's absolutely the direction that they're moving us.
6: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
2: Well, I wanted to dig just a little bit deeper into this because I think this is a big deal. How basically we've got a Chinese-owned pork producing company, the largest pork producer in the United States, getting the federal government to force their workers to come back to work so that they can process pork to ship to China. But it goes beyond that. I realize Donald Trump has given this a bad name, but these were and historically have been the positions of the Democratic Party. And frankly, they were the positions of many in the Republican Party for years and years and years that there should be limits on foreign investment in the United States. Foreign companies should not be able to buy American companies. Foreign entities should not be able to buy American real estate. These are, by the way, common laws in countries all around the world. You know, three-quarters of Europe right now, you can't buy a house there and say, this is mine and I'm going to live here in the United States and I'm just buying it as an investment. You can't do it. You can't do it in much of Central and South America. You can't do it in Russia. You can't do it, I mean, but I'm talking about democracies here. You, you just generally can't do it. But you can in the United States. We've We've taken this very laissez-faire attitude and said, oh, it's just fine. And as a result you've got a sizable percentage. I've seen numbers as low as 3%, as high as 10%, and I'm not sure that anybody really knows for sure because of the opacity of a lot of these real estate transactions where they operate through what are called REITs, Real Estate Investment Trusts, (REITs), where you'll have a bunch of investors who get together and they create a REIT and then the REIT goes out and buys five or 10,000 homes, turns them into rental properties, And just basically sits on them for a few years, and the value goes up faster than the stock market. It's a great way to invest, you know, if you're a billionaire or a multimillionaire and you're looking for an investment. But what it is doing when all this foreign money comes in, because a large chunk of the real estate on the West Coast is owned by people in Japan, Taiwan, China, South Korea, you know, the wealthier countries of Asia. And Hawaii, a large chunk of Hawaii is owned by foreign entities, both individuals and corporations. And a large chunk of East Coast property is owned by oligarchs, some from Western Europe, some from you know, Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, and Russia. And by buying up all our real estate, and you know, for example, buy, you've got all these oligarchs who have bought Trump properties, Right? Eric Trump bragging about it. Yeah, we get a whole pile of money from Russia and they pay in cash. Like Donald Trump made that comment in one of his rallies. Why should I hate the Russians? They pay cash. People pay cash when they're laundering money. People pay cash when it's, when it's uh, ill-gotten gains. But it's distorting our real estate markets. You wonder why the price of real estate is going up. Yeah, Part of it is low interest rates. A large chunk of it, though, is foreign investment. I've gotten solicited twice so far this year by a company saying, hey, we'll pay cash for your house right now, looking to buy distressed properties. You dig into it and you discover, hey, it's a giant investment company based in Tokyo or in Beijing or in Los Angeles. And you look at who's on the board and it's all people, largely people, who are not Americans. And now the Trump administration, the FCC has said, and I, I know I mentioned this earlier, but it bears repeating, Used to be, American media, television stations, radio stations, television networks, could only be twenty-five percent owned by foreign entities. In the last seven days, the Trump administration has changed that to say that foreign entities can buy hundred percent of American media. Specifically, who asked for this was Cumulus. Cumulus is a company that Dickey Brothers bought it out, and then you know it went through private equity and it got burned, and, and it's just you know it's the same thing with iHeartMedia. Basically, they've been used to extract cash for banksters, and now you know, broken, bloody. Cumulus is trying to sell themselves, and they can't find an American buyer. So they're saying we want a foreign buyer, and the Trump administration says, okay, we'll change the rules. So you've got, you know, I don't know how many radio stations they own right now. At their peak, they owned like 800. I think it's three, four hundred now, in major markets in the United States. So is it going to be voice of China? Voice of Saudi Arabia? Here's the official news brought to you by Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, is that the future of the United States? You know, we've got auto factories that are owned by Toyota and Honda right here in the United States. Hey, it creates jobs, isn't that wonderful? Well, yeah, but those jobs create profit. Where does that profit go? Oh, yeah, that's right, it goes to Japan. We're being hollowed out, we're being eaten alive, and the Republicans have been pushing this stuff. Nixon opened us to China, Reagan negotiated NAFTA, the whole free trade thing has has come out of the Nixon and Reagan administrations. Bizarrely, Democrats get blamed for it, because Trump picked up this cudgel. But frankly, I think it's time to slow down or reverse foreign investment in America. Maybe start taxing these investments if they're foreign-owned. What do you think? Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two Ns. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
6: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
2: So for our Tom Hartman Insider video that's available over at Hartman.com, I'm talking about Donald Trump just completely giving in to Erdogan of Turkey, the president of Turkey, the dictator of Turkey now. And this theory that Jared Kushner okayed the killing, at least the capture, perhaps the killing of Jamal Khashoggi to Mohammed bin Salman, and that Erdogan has the tape of it, and that when he called up Donald Trump and said, I want you to pull out of Syria and give me those Kurds so I can kill them and take that land, that he did it because Erdogan threatened him. And then Erdogan comes to the United States a week or two later and gets a whole state dinner thing. Check it all out. It's over at TomHartman.com. I think you'll find it fascinating. Andrew in Riverside, California. Hey, Andrew, what's on your mind today?
3: Yeah, hey, Tom. Thanks for your show. Listen to you on KPFK Pacifica. Following up we're about accountability for our elected representatives in this self governed country that we live in, I think accountability is key for us to have a proper functioning government. And I'm wondering, you know, given that you have Congressman Pocan, who is awesome, I think, to come on the air answer uh, calls from the people we the people I think that's key that's a process that we need and um, I'm wondering number one how many of our representatives do this kind of process give give us this kind of access in Congress or our senators and then I'm wondering if we can require that of our congress people somehow to come on the air Go on social media something in these times of technology we can easily do that require that they answer to us on a regular basis as congressman mm-hmm. now is doing on your show
2: yeah i know that there are a few republican members of congress who regularly go on right-wing shows like sean hannity's show i don't believe they take calls from the public i think they mostly just talk with the host here on our program you know of course we did this with bernie for 13 years i think or at least 11 years and then, you know, when Bernie stopped, Congressman Pocan, who was, you know, one of the leaders of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which Bernie helped start, by the way, said that he would be willing to do it. And from time to time, Ro Connor, Congressman Connor from California, comes on. And from time to time, uh, Congressman Pocan's co chair, Pramila Jayapal, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, comes on and takes calls. We haven't necessarily reached out to every member of Congress and said, hey, would you like to do this? But, you know, we've been doing this forever as long as I've been doing this show. I mean, Bernie started in the first or second year of this program, so uh, we've been doing this forever. Most radio shows and television programs would not do this because the show is supposed to be intended to highlight the host, right? And it's all about the host's opinions or the guests of the host's opinions. And having a member of Congress come on and having the host basically just play traffic cop, at least in theory, violates all the rules of radio, or television for that matter. And when we first tried it, we were advised not to do it. First tried it with Bernie, you know, 15 years ago. But it's worked out well for this program. I don't think it diminishes me or my show. I think actually people love it. And I would like to see more of my peers do this, and I'd like to see it being done on the conservative side as well. But it's just not. And I think it's partly because of that conventional wisdom, partly because there's a lot of hosts who don't want to give up on an hour of their program to basically you know, turn their show over to somebody else, which is what I do with Congressman Pocan. It's kind of problematic, but in terms of town halls, I mean, Bernie was outspoken about this. He was like, all you have to do is go out wherever you are, anywhere in the country, Go to your local school and rent an auditorium, and most schools will give them to you for free or libraries or whatever. Announce that there's a town hall meeting and invite your member of Congress. Shame them into showing up. I mean, that's harder to do now now that we've got COVID. But this idea, well, Republicans just never went along with that. Most Republicans never hold town hall meetings. Democrats regularly do. book today is Age of Discovery, Navigating the Storms of Our Second Renaissance by Ian Golden and Chris Cutarna. Uh, The paperback edition is now out. This is from Chapter One, titled To Flounder or Flourish. If Michelangelo were reborn right now, amidst all the turmoil that marks this shocking moment we're in, would he flounder or flourish again? Every year, millions of people file into the Sistine Chapel to stare up and wonder at Michelangelo Bunurati's creation of Adam. Millions more pay homage to Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Through five centuries, we have carefully preserved such Renaissance masterpieces and cherished them as objects of beauty and inspiration. But they also challenge us. The artists who crafted these feats of genius 500 years ago did not inhabit some magical age of universal beauty, but rather a tumultuous moment. Marked by historic milestones and discoveries, yes, but also wrenching upheaval. Their world was tangling together in a way that it had never done before, thanks to Gutenberg's recent invention of the printing press, 1450s, Columbus's discovery of the New World, 1492, and Vasco de Gama's discovery of a sea route to Asia's riches, 1497. And humanity's fortunes were changing in some ways radically. The Black Death had tapered off, Europe's population was recovering, and public health, wealth, and education were all rising. Genius flourished under these conditions as evidenced by artistic achievements, especially from the 1490s to the 1520s, by Copernicus's revolutionary theories of a sun-centered cosmos, 1510, and by similar advances in a wide range of fields from biology to engineering to navigation to medicine. Basic common-sense truths that had stood unquestioned for centuries, even millennia, were eroding away. The earth did not stand still. The sun did not revolve around it. The known world wasn't even half of the whole. The human heart wasn't the soul. It was a pump. In mere decades, printing boosted the production of books from hundreds to millions per year. And these weird facts and new ideas traveled farther and faster than had ever been possible. But risk flourished, too. Terrifying new diseases spread like wildfire on both sides of the now-connected Atlantic. The Ottoman Turks, backed by the new weapon of gunpowder, conquered the eastern Mediterranean for Islam in a stunning series of land and naval victories that cast a threatening gloom over all of Europe. Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546, leveraged Gutenberg's press to broadcast a new narrative that society's hallowed institutions served only to fatten their own hierarchies. It spread faster than compliant elites could fathom. Europe broke into Protestant and Catholic halves. War and refugee crises ignited continent-wide. Meanwhile, the populist priest Girolamo Savonarola, 1452 to 1498, ignited a real fire, the bonfire of the vanities in Florence, the very heart of Renaissance Europe. With apocalyptic sermons, Savonarola stoked people's worst reactions to rapid change. He promised Florentines a return to past glories, if only they would join him in his campaign To burn away weak elites and their corrupt agendas. Enough did so that he was able to lord over the republic as a de facto king until four years later his political enemies literally crucified him. Such was the age in which on 8 September 1504 in Florence, Italy, Michelangelo unveiled his statue of David in the city's main square. Standing over five meters tall, weighing in at over six tons of fine Carrara marble, David was an instant monument to the city's wealth and to that sculptor's skill. David and Goliath was a familiar Old Testament story about a brave young warrior who, in true underdog fashion, improbably defeated a giant foe in a single combat. But with hammer and chisel, Michelangelo fixed into stone a monument no one had seen before. It must have caused some confusion for those present at the unveiling. David's face and neck were tense. His brow was furrowed, and his eyes focused determinedly Upon some distant point, he stood not triumphant atop the corpse of his enemy, the standard portrayal, but ready with the implacable resolve of one who knows his next step, but not its outcome. And then they saw the artist's meaning clearly. Michelangelo carved David in that fateful moment between decision and action, between realizing what he must do and summoning the courage to do it. They knew that moment. They were in it. We are in it, too. The present age is a contest between the good and bad consequences of global entanglement and human development, between forces of inclusion and exclusion, between flourishing genius and flourishing risks. Whether we each flourish or flounder, and whether the 21st century goes down in the history books as one of humanity's best or worst, depends on what we all do to promote the possibilities and dampen the dangers that this contest brings. The stakes could not be higher. We each have the perilous fortune to have been born into an historic moment, a decisive moment, when events and choices in our own lifetime will dictate the circumstances of many, many lifetimes to come. Yes, it is the conceit of each generation to think so, but this time it's true. The long-term facts speak more loudly than our egos ever could. Age of Discovery, fascinating book. Bill, in White Plains, New York. Hey, Bill, what's up? It's actually no
8: show. What I was calling for is, uh, I don't think we're going to survive Trump and McConnell until November. It it doesn't even look at... I'm just wondering, we can't get rid of Trump, obviously. Is there any way we could get McConnell out of there?
2: No. (laughs) Short, short, uh, at least not before November. And actually, it would be the first week of January, which is when Congress gets reinstalled. But, you know, he's got a couple of uh, strong challengers. And my biggest concern is that the Democrats, you know, in the primary process, you've got a, the Kentucky primaries coming up and that the Democrats might end up hurting themselves. But he's got some really strong challengers and, and hopefully one of them will take him out at the election in the, in the polls. Well, yeah,
8: well, uh, we'll yeah, but that's just it. I, I was hoping there was some kind of a procedure like impeachment, like for a senator or, you know what I'm saying, uh, that type of a thing. You know what?
2: You can't you, impeach you a, a senator. Because
8: for 13 years, this Our, guy has, you know, stopped the Senate from working.
2: Yeah, you can impeach a senator, and I believe that there have been articles of impeachment drafted against senators. I know it's happened uh, at least once against a member of the uh, Supreme Court. It would have to originate in the House of Representatives. It would have to be voted on by the majority of the House. It would then go to the Senate, where Mitch McConnell would probably recuse himself, but the Senate would have to oversee the process, and then by a two-thirds vote, they'd have to remove Mitch McConnell. And I can just tell you, Bill, that's not going to happen. You know, Sadly, it's not going to happen. Mike in Seattle. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind?
8: did you have any sense of kind of before he became
5: president of his sociopathy and kind of how bad it was going to be or would you kind of think i didn't personally
2: but my best friend lives in manhattan and has his whole entire life i mean literally born there and i mean we've been best friends since the early 70s i've heard so many trump stories that will curl your hair one of my best friends i should say Uh, one of maybe three or four people. It's just remarkable. I mean, you know, New Yorkers know who he is. They know what a con artist and a a scam artist he is. They figured out that he's mob connected, you know, when he opened his casino in New Jersey, using it for money laundering and stuff like that. But, you know, it's really NBC. Had NBC not given Trump his own show, you know, The Apprentice Show, and and taught him how to be a good reality star, although he already had really good instincts with regard to, the, you know, self-promotion. He'd been fine-tuning it since he was in his 20s. But had they not given him that show, I am quite certain he would not be president. Vincent in Amherst, Mass. Hey, Vincent, thanks for listening to WHMP. What's up? Well, I had heard you talk about how it would not be a good
5: thing for the presidential election to go into the house of representatives because the republicans controlled the vote which would be by state and i did an analysis and in actuality the democrats have twenty three states, and including the district of columbia that would vote for a democratic candidate the Republicans well, have DC would 20, get
2: excluded under under the here's here, just for your data points, Vincent, before you finish, because this may alter it. First of all, DC doesn't get a vote if it goes to the House. Okay. Um, secondly, that, that's been decided in the past? Yeah, that, we went through this it's once not, before it's in not 1876.
5: not clear from the 23rd Amendment that that would be the case.
2: And it, might it, be is, it is clear from the 1878 legislation that clarifies the 23rd Amendment. Just Google my name and the word's 12th Amendment. You'll find a whole in-depth article on this. It's now 2222,
5: 22, and there is a, a tied state, and then there are five states that are basically, because of Republican congressional that are basically up in the air with regard to the 2020 election. No, they're not. Vincent,
2: again, just stop for a second. What the law says, what that 1878 law says, and, and I believe what the 12th Amendment says, is that the governor of the state has no say in it. You take the combined House and Senate, and everybody in both bodies has one vote. So you may have a Senate that's controlled by Democrats and a House that's controlled by Republicans, but the Senate's got 15 members and the House has got 80, right? Um, So you combine the House and Senate in every state, and they vote— as to how that state's one vote will be cast in the House of Representatives. No, it's, it's the, the members the, of the House of Representatives. It, it is, is the, not. The vote the is cast by a member of the House. But the House of Representatives itself, each state has one vote. And it, it will be cast by a member of the House of Representatives, but it is decided by the legislature of the individual state. Look it up, Vincent. It's not the way you're characterizing it.